Alive and Kicking on News Talk with Benelin Day and Night Tablets. 24 hour cold and flu relief. Always read the label. Ask your pharmacist for advice. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire's Lair. Coming up this morning, we don't often talk about death, and if we do, it's often shrouded in sadness and fear. Journalist Colm Keane has written a number of books featuring people's experiences of getting close to death but ultimately surviving. And today I speak to Irish singer Michelle Lally about what she remembers after a brush with death herself. And Christmas is getting closer and the kids are getting more and more wound up by the day with talk of Santa and the elves watching, elves moving around the house, school ending and lots more sugar around. It is the most wonderful time of the year after all. But how do we get them to wind it all down and get an early night on Christmas Eve? I'll be joined by Chris, the daddy sleep consultant, to get some tips and tricks. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, it's all gone a bit bonkers, hasn't it? It certainly has in my house. My sister has arrived with her family for the festive. So we have two families and my mum all in a rather delicious commune. I'm fully into it. But there's a baby, a toddler, my two, school runs, Christmas shopping, all the normal household stuff, deliveries arriving that I can't remember what's in them, wrapping... I'm fully on the Christmas roller coaster and I am enjoying it, but I couldn't say that I've managed in the midst of it all with work popping in and out as well to manage a correct routine. Now, I tried not to put all my eggs in the January basket, but in fairness, it's really hard, isn't it? Not to say, let's just throw our hat at everything until then, whatever that means to you. I've started working with one of the guests I had on the show. Uh, You might search for her in the podcasts, Sinead Brophy. She's a health coach that works mainly with women for you to delve deeper into your health, your habits and your cycle and bring them all together. And I was so interested in what she had to say when she came on. I decided to give her programme a go. And I am so far loving all that she's saying, but I'm barely finding a schedule to track and talk to her about And next week goes into super overdrive with Santa visits and the panto and my nephew turning one. So, yeah, I'll see you in January routine and consistency. I do feel, though, that throughout it all, I always have my pillars of eating to nourish myself, moving my body daily, finding pockets of peace where I can to fill myself up and lots of fun and play. Now, I do know that I'm very lucky and I am cherishing every moment. Christmas isn't an easy time for everyone. So wherever you're at, I hope you find your calm amidst what can be chaos. And I know not everyone has plenty and there's so much focus on that. The real spirit is to give back and to be with those you love. And I hope you do get to do that in spite of what Omicron may have planned for Christmas and that you stay safe and well and you mind yourself. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Now, we don't often talk about death and if we do, it's often shrouded in fear or sadness at the time of a funeral. Well, journalist Colm Keane has written extensively on the topic of death and many of his books feature people's experiences of getting close to death but ultimately surviving. Irish singer Michelle Lally features in Colm Keane's book Going Home, Irish Stories from the Edge of Death and she joins me on the line now. Hello, Michelle. How are you? How are you, Claire? How are you doing? I'm good. So this happened in 2000. You had gone into hospital to have your first baby. Did you go in 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 labour? I did. Um, I was two days overdue. Um, prior to that, they were basically saying he was going to be a big baby. Um, 
but they were kind of okay. They were kind of saying, look, we'll let you go. We'll see how, you know, we'll monitor you. We'll see how you go. But it looks like he's going to be about eight and a half um, pounds. And, um, but look, I, I was due on the 15th of July and the night of the 16th going into the 17th of July, I went into labor in the middle of the night. The waters broke. And um, so very excited. We were very excited. My mother was over from Ireland. It was the birth of her first grandchild. And the whole thing was just, you know, went it went textbook, really. We were fine. We went into the hospital. Um, they brought us in, got me ready. Um, and just as the contractions were starting to get a little bit unbearable, um, they gave me the epidural. And so that obviously made things a lot easier. But then um, with about two hours of trying to deliver him naturally, uh, it wasn't happening. He was stuck in the birth canal. He wasn't coming out. And so the doctors decided that they would perform an emergency cesarean. And so that was it. Wheeled into the operating room and uh, the cesarean section went fine and the baby was delivered and everything was great. You know, a perfect, healthy boy, nine, eight point six. Wow. Um, so he was big. Yeah. Half, as I say, he was half reared when he came out. <laughs> but um, he was gorgeous. He was perfect in absolutely every way. He was absolutely beautiful. And we were all just crazy, you know, happy and it was delirious with happiness. We were just so happy. So, uh yeah, and I suppose then the the big job then was because this all happened in America, and um, the big job then for um, my husband was to go home and to make the phone calls to Ireland because it was was uh, the day before the days before mobile phones, and so he had to go home and make the phone calls to Ireland to my father and my family and friends and uh, tell them all the the news that it was a boy and do all those kind of things. So he left me in the hospital with my mother who was with me to just stay with me and, and, and keep an eye on me and all that. So that was it. And I was wheeled into the recovery room to rest basically. And yeah. And you were feeling well at that point. I mean, look, as well as you can after going through full labor and then yeah. a C-section, but you know, you're, you're tired, you're, you, you've just had surgery, but you, you were happy. You were feeling okay. I was feeling great. I really was um, just delighted. It all went so well. Um, and as you said, you didn't, the normal, it was 12 hours basically from start to finish in the labor and um, you'd be tired. But at the same time, the adrenaline has kicked in and, you know, you're you're still in that zone of, of what has just happened and this new life has come into the world. But the baby was brought away to the baby unit to, to be looked at and t- taken care of. And I was left to... Uh, rest in and recover in in a room um, with my mother and it was at that point then I started to feel a bit more pain and I was kind of very very aware that this was happening and I was very like uh what's the word just confused as to why this pain was getting stronger and stronger and stronger and eventually, and I'm not, I'm actually a very good patient. I, I hate to be annoying anybody or annoying nurses or doctors or anything like that. So I was kind of waiting to see, would it subside or would it go away? But it, it was actually getting worse. And where and was the pain? It was in my abdomen. It was in like all around the lower part of my, of my stomach. And 
I it it started to get into the point where it was like contractions again, that bad. And um, I said to my mother, I said, I'm I'm in a lot of pain, and she was she was you know, but went out to the nurse and she told the nurse, and the nurse said that's normal, it's absolutely fine, don't worry about it, she'll be fine. So you know that was it, okay. Again, it was getting worse and worse and worse. And my mother kept going out and they'd come in and they'd say, look, it's the, it's the uterus contracting. It's, you know, it, that's absolutely normal. So, okay, we waited another little while. And at this point, I was really in excruciating pain. And my mother looked at me and she said that my lips were going blue. My nails were going blue. I was getting a deathly color, like I was just going very pale. And I looked at her at one point and I said, I'm dying. She just looked at me wide-eyed and I just went, I'm dying, mum. I'm going to die. And I was in so much pain. So she ran out and she screamed at the nurses to come in. And at that point, they all ran in and they pulled down the blankets and I was hemorrhaging. Wow. And it's interesting that you said I'm dying. Was that just connected to the pain or do you think you had an idea that life was was slipping away? Do you know, it was actually this, uh, it was deeper than sleep. It was this tiredness that came over me, but it wasn't tiredness. That's what the thing was. I was very aware that it wasn't tired I was aware that I had 12 hours labor put in I was aware that I was tired but this was a pull I was being pulled there was something I I presume it was the fact that I was bleeding and the life was literally bleeding out of me I was I was you know I was being pulled and I said this isn't sleep I'm being pulled there's something serious is happening here and yeah I was aware that there was something way more serious at that stage. Um, and then, pandemonium uh, started then, absolute chaos. Chaos. With the medical staff. Were you yes. conscious of all of that going on around you? Yes. And I remember them, um, you know, panicking. I remember them rushing the gurney that I was on down the corridor, back into the, the operating theatre again. And... Um, I very, very vague recollections of what happened at that stage. I presume I was going in and out of consciousness. Um, I'm not sure, but it, 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 very, very vague recollections of the panic of the room. I know they, they did a DNC, which is the scraping of the uterus to try and, and stop the bleeding of some sort. But that obviously didn't work. They reopened the cesarean uh, section area. Uh, they went in to make sure that there were no foreign objects left in my uterus while they had been performing the the surgery. There was nothing. They stitched me back up again. Um, I just kept bleeding. So they were obviously, I was having transfusions done at this stage too. So they were feeding the blood into me, but it was coming out just as fast. So something was happening with the uterus. The uterus wasn't, it was just hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging. So they eventually decided that the best thing to do was to perform a hysterectomy at that stage. That was the only thing that they could do to save my life, basically. Wow. And I mean, obviously you were under for this part, but on the way down, reading the essay in Colm Keane's book, 
like you say, you remember things like the nurse who was saying, Michelle, Michelle, stay with me. Can you still see her face now, 20 years later? Absolutely. Yeah, I can. As clear as day. Um, She made me focus on her face so carefully. She just kept saying, stay with me, Michelle, stay with me. And I remember her name was Alexis and uh, she was a lovely, lovely midwife. She was with me the whole way through the labor. Um, she was so happy when the baby was born and she was there by my side when uh, when the pandemonium um, happened. And she just put her he- she put both her hands on either side of my face and she was so close to my face. And she said, stay with me, stay with me, Michelle. And she was not shouting in a bad way, but she was, you know, she had her voice raised I could see that there was panic in her eyes. There was obviously something uh, very wrong going on. Um, and I could hear the the sounds of the operating room and the doctors and the nurses and everybody was in a state of panic. I do remember that very vividly. And then talk to me about the sense of, of calmness and, and floating that came to you then. Yeah, almost. Go, it was. It literally went from the panic to another place completely in this in a split second I just went I was just there I was very aware that I was no longer in the um, operating room I was aware that I was in I can only describe it as a space there were no walls or windows or anything like that but right in front of me all I could see was what I would describe as a panel of some sort whether it's a curtain panel or a veil, or something right in front of my face. And I could see the weave of the panel, crisscross of the weaves. And and it was there was a kind of a soft wind blowing from behind it. So it's kind of waving in and out in front of my face, like there was a soft breeze blowing behind it. And I was floating. And I was floating to the right of the panel. So the panel was in front of me, but I was floating to the right and it was still in front of me the whole time. And eventually I came to the end of the panel and I could see off onto the other side. And my mother-in-law and my father-in-law were standing just off there in the distance, um, enough where I couldn't reach them, but I could see them. Um, and they were exactly as I remember them. Now he died, she died about uh, three years before this happened. And he died 18 months before this happened. And they were both there. He was standing a little bit behind her. And I was absolutely in awe to see them. I, I just, I, I suppose the confusion of finding myself in a completely different place and with this beautiful peace and calm, this lovely feeling of being um, just in a very safe place and seeing them there. And I wanted to go to them. I wanted to run over to them and hug them. And uh, she just put up her hands and she said, you have to go back. It's not your time. Well, Michelle, stay on the line and we'll take a break. But when we come back, we'll find out what happened next. Alive and kicking on News Talk with Benelin Day and Night Tablets. 24 hour cold and flu relief. Always read the label. Ask your pharmacist for advice. You're welcome back to Alive and Kicking and I'm talking to Irish singer Michelle Lally about her near-death experience which features in Colm Keane's book Going Home, Irish Stories from the Edge of Death. And would you have been a religious person 
Michelle, because it's kind of religious in this imagery, isn't it? The veil and behind the veil and the spirituality yeah. and your time. I mean, maybe it's spiritual as opposed to to religious. But had yeah. you thought about this before? Um, no, never. Uh, you know, as far as my religion, I was brought up, um, you know, in a very, you know, my father's very religious and we went to mass every Sunday as children. Um, I suppose as I got older as an adult, I went less and less. But I always believed there was a God. I said prayers every night before I went to sleep while I was pregnant. My father sent me over a little card and it was a prayer for expectant mothers. And it was about keeping me safe and 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 bringing the baby safely into the world and everything. And I, um, I said that prayer every night while I was pregnant. And, um, but I was, well, um, yeah, but I, I suppose in that sense, I was religious. I had faith, definitely. I had faith that there was something there, but I didn't know what, obviously, you know, like all of us, we do question everything. Same as life after death. I wasn't sure what I believed in. If there was anything, you know, I didn't have any, I suppose I didn't really have any ideas either way. Um, and you came back, if we wanted to, to call it that, you survived. But what the doctors told you afterwards was that it had been really touch and go. You had flatlined for over 10 seconds and it was just that somebody in the operating theatre had used a straw to breathe for you. Yeah. And you essentially came back from that. But you've quite a lot of consciousness in the ICU. You were aware you were in ICU and of the people around you, which I know will give comfort to some people who have sat around a loved one in ICU. Mm. Tell us a little bit about that from your perspective. Yeah, well, almost immediately after my mother-in-law had told me to go back, it was as if it was in seconds that I woke up in ICU. But in fact, it had been hours later. So I had obviously been out, out of it for a couple of hours. When I woke up, I could barely open my eyes. I couldn't speak. I was on life support. I was aware that, like, my mother was crying. Um, I was aware that there were family members around my bed, although I couldn't really make out who it was because I could only see a certain portion of, let's say, their hands or their arms around my bed. I couldn't really see who was there. But I grabbed the first arm of the person next to me. It happened to be my uncle who lived in New York at the time and just got into the um, into the room as I was waking up. And I grabbed his arm. And with my finger, I made the, the signs for, or I wrote on his arm, I-C-E, ice. And the reason I did that was because I was on life support. The, the ventilator was drying my mouth out and I was... And it sounds awful, but I was probably caked. It was just that feeling of like just no saliva. There was nothing in my mouth and I just needed something. And I was told I couldn't have anything. And then I wrote, I see you asking, is that where I was? And they said, yeah, uh, that's where you are. And then I wrote Barbara. And I started pointing to myself, pointing to my eyes and then pointing to the arm. They realized I had written Barbara. And I just kept pointing to myself, my eyes and the arm to let them know that I just saw Barbara. I was so excited. I couldn't wait to tell anybody that would listen or whoever was there beside me. And uh, I don't know what they made of it, to be honest with you. I really don't. But um, it wasn't it, like that. That night, I think, was um, 
it was touch and go for for they didn't know how I was going to be as you said when when this all happened and when I flatlined in the operating room the anesthesiologist who was supposed to be on another part of the hospital because it was a university hospital all these doctors were giving lectures and and with their students and different parts of the hospital for various reasons but when this happened it was like an emergency went down throughout the hospital everybody knew what was going on and all the doctors rushed over and the anesthesiologist was by my head when I flatlined and so when the brain was starved of all the oxygen and the brain waves stopped going to my brain. My brain was basically shut down and I flatlined. I was gone. He breathed in through a straw for for me to have oxygen circulating and oxygen going to my brain. And only for him, like, I don't know how I would be today. If I would be a functioning person in society, would I be able to communicate? Would I have been able to be, you know, a mother, a you know, to, to Evan and look after him as well as, um, as I did when I came out of it all. But, um, very, very thankful to that man. And and I remember him coming up to the ICU room and just standing at the door. And it was to even get the words, thank you out to this man seemed, didn't seem enough. You know, I just broke down when I saw him because I realized just how much he had done for me. You know, they all did. All the doctors were amazing, but the quick thinking of him, I think saved my faculties and, and the fact that I was able to to function normally. And it's incredible that there's so much consciousness, particularly in the ICU. I mean, I suppose you're never going to know what it was you saw. Was it to do with the morphine? Was it to do with the anesthetic? Or was it real? You're, you're not going to know. But I suppose the positive of what you've taken from it is that you're not afraid of of death anymore. There was a very calm feeling that came over you and that's what you're taking from it. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, the thing is, I suppose, mainstream science would, would question everything that I'm saying um, and put it down to morphine or, or this, that and the other. But at the end of the day, these these experiences do happen to people who are in car crashes, you know, that don't have any morphine administered into their body at all and even from my perspective um my brain had shut down my brain had the the way the brain waves had stopped my brain had shut down and i had flatlined so technically i was dead there was no there should be no consciousness of the brain at that point um you know there there shouldn't be any imagery or imagining or dreams or anything at that point but yet I did see something. And when I came back, there was no question in my mind it was real. It was more to do with how do I tell people this without sounding like, you know, I didn't want to be dismissed. I didn't want the story to be dismissed as, as oh, it's only just her imagination or she dreamt it or, you know, it was how am I going to be taken seriously that this is an amazing thing that just happened to me. And even the following day, when or was it two days later they took me off the ventilator and like I was with trying to speak but telling everybody what had happened and the doctors were just sitting there looking at me you know kind of going well you were dead we lost you and then it all made sense um and then they told me that I you know that I had a hysterectomy and that I could no I couldn't have any more children and it just paled in significance to 
what had just happened to me. I mean, I was very lucky. I had a very healthy baby. I was alive. And I had this amazing experience. And so there was so many different emotions going on in my head. But um, the hysterectomy didn't bother me at that stage. And did it shift your perspective in life? Did that experience affect you from from then on and shape who you are now? Absolutely. It has to. You can't go through something like this and, and not to change you. Um, yeah, you do. You, you, you think of life very differently um, and who, you know, what you want to do with your life. And um, and I was never a, a bad person or anything like that. But, you know, you just feel like you you just want to be a better person all the time. Um, material things don't matter. They never did, really. But they definitely didn't after that. Um, I saw, you know, every opportunity to help people as a great thing. And um, I don't take any day for, for granted that I wake up. Um, I know we're here only for a short time. I suppose the fear of death that I used to have is gone. Um, I look at it now as, you know, the next phase of, of my life, of my spiritual life or my soul. Um, that the fact that the mind, when this happened, that the mind could go to something else, to me proves that there's there's way more than science can actually tell us, you know, that's going on in in with our with our consciousness, that uh, that that exists beyond our physical body. To me, that's what that that I learned from it. That we went to some, that I went someplace else. I could see other people there in a form of how I remember them. But obviously, I know that their physical form is in Earth, and I know that they were, you know, they were buried and everything. But I saw them as I remembered them. They communicated with me, you know. Um, but it, it it was just it's a very surreal thing, and it's a very hard thing to probably describe to somebody who hasn't experienced it. And I know there are many people who've experienced stories, you know, experienced things like this, but some are afraid to talk about it. Some love talking about it I like talking about it I think it, you know it, it brings me back I the most amazing thing I think about the whole thing is that it's 21 years ago and I can still remember it vividly as as when it exactly happened when it happened I can remember it exactly the same way and some of my memories from that time from being pregnant and are way less my memories are not great they're very vague but that is as vivid as the day it happened. I know it's so interesting. And I think what else I I, I think people will get comfort from it, you know. Um, mm. Well, I hope they will, because it sounds like a positive experience, because like I said in my introduction, we fear death and we don't talk about death and whether people want to believe what you saw or the, what that represents. I'm sure they believe that you did see that and that they're your memories, but whether or not they want to believe that that represents something is is very different. Mm. You know, it's the fact that you did nearly die and that's what you remember. And like I said, you feature in Colm Keane's book, Going Home, Irish Stories from the Edge of Death. And there are similarities to a lot of those stories. How did taking part in that book come about? Um, Colm put an ad out on the newspaper looking for people in Ireland who had experienced a near death. And um, I 
I got in contact with him and he was very interested in my story and um, we spoke on the phone and he printed the story and then he came out that with another book called We'll Meet Again, um, Irish Deathbed Visions, Who You Meet When You Die and um, he also um, put a little bit of my story back in that and then he came out with another one called Heading for the Light and he also spoke of my story in that and what I loved about Colm's books were that they were real people with real stories. But the very, there was one thing that we all had in common and we all had a boundary of some sort where my boundary was the panel, the curtain, the veil, whatever way you want to call it. I didn't cross to the other side of that. I stayed on my side. Even though I wanted to go, I didn't go. Some people had a a bridge, some people had a stairs that had to climb, some people had a boat that they had to row over to the other side of a, of a river. Um, there were many, many different boundaries that people had to cross. And in all the stories, those boundaries weren't crossed. So that leads us to believe that that's where, that is where the point of no return is. If you cross that boundary that we don't come back. But all the stories of people who've had these experiences never crossed that boundary, whatever boundary they had. Mine was the, the veil, obviously. Well, Michelle, thank God you came back um, <laughs> for your son, for your husband, for your family. And so that we can continue to hear your beautiful singing voice. Michelle Lally, thank you so much for coming on. A pleasure. Thank you, Claire. Coming up after the break, a sleep expert on how you get your kids to sleep on Christmas Eve. Alive and kicking on News Talk with Benelin Day and Night Tablets. 24-hour cold and flu relief. Always read the label. Ask your pharmacist for advice. Christmas is getting closer and the kids are getting more and more wound up with talk of Santa and the elves watching, elves moving, school ending and lots more sugar around. It is the most wonderful time of year after all. But how do you get them then to wind it all down and get an early night on Christmas Eve? Well, Chris McFadden is the daddy sleep consultant and he joins me now to give some tips and tricks. Hello, Chris. How are you? I'm good, Claire. Thanks for having me on. So, Chris, we can hear you've got a Scottish accent, but you are originally from Donegal. Is that right? That's correct. I was born in Donegal, a little place called Guidoa. And uh, I moved to Glasgow when I was young because my mum and dad were from Donegal, but my dad moved over work for work. So I was brought up in Glasgow, hence the, the Glaswegian ta- twang. Um, and then I moved down south to, to London and then Kent over the last 15 years. So I've been a little bit all over the place. Well, let's and talk all. a little bit about your job title there, um, the Daddy Sleep Consultant. Tell me a bit about the, the daddy part. Tell me about the, the kids and you've, you've won on the way. Yes, yes. So um, most of, I'm, a, I'm a qualified baby and toddler sleep consultant, but my, my primary job in life is, is being dad to two little boys. I've got Teddy, who's three and a half, and I've got Rafferty, who's uh, 18 months, and I've got a little boy probably going to come uh, over this weekend. So we're just waiting for his arrival. Um, but yes, that'll be a third boy. Um, it's <laughs> it's going to keep me busy for the next few years. Amazing. And is this what led you to become a sleep consultant? Was it battling with getting your own kids to sleep that that's, made you look that's into exactly it? it? Yeah, that's exactly it. Claire, I was um, our, our eldest, Teddy, when, when he was about f- nearly six months, you know, he broke us physically and emotionally with uh, his sleep deprivation. Um, 
we tried everything to get him to sleep, but we were up all hours of the night, rocking him, patting him, co-sleeping, feeding him back to sleep, you name it, we did it. And we were just walking around as zombies. Um, we we weren't the parents we hoped to be. We weren't enjoying parenting, as, as horrible as that, that may sound. When you're sleep deprived, it's, it has a, such a, an effect on your, your physical and mental well-being. And, and we weren't enjoying it. We weren't getting on as a couple either because we were... We weren't having quality time together and you don't necessarily have great, productive, warm conversations at three o'clock in the morning. So um, it had such an impact, we decided to, to seek some help from a local sleep consultant. And within the matter of a couple of weeks, our lives had, had changed, changed dramatically. It's crazy, isn't it? And, you know, you get so many mixed opinions from well-meaning family and friends. Then you go on to forums and parents are saying this worked for me, that worked for me. Then the two of you have your own opinions. Then when you get one person in who is an expert in their field and they give you a plan and you're both on the same page and consistent, it can really reap rewards. I couldn't put it better myself, Claire, to be honest with you. That's exactly it. There is so much information out there, so many opinions, and it's all done with the best intentions, but every baby's different. The sleep physiology isn't that different, but personalities are different. Um, parents' views of uh, how they want to respond to their children, it's all different. So bringing all of this information and expertise through a sleep consultant where we can provide one voice in the house, and one approach that, that may then be tweaked, but it's been tweaked by an expert rather than, than I call, call it Dr. Google, which is very confusing. And, and parents often then don't um, aren't able to, to provide that level of consistency, which is needed for, for, for baby sleep when they're, they're, they're trying something from Google and it doesn't work on the first hour or the first day. So we, 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 we've got expertise and we've got information, we've got great knowledge, but we also bring that single um, voice, which is, like you said, is just so important. Because, I mean, I can hear even in your tone there, you're being respectful of all different people's different approaches mm -hmm. to sleeping. Some people do want to co-sleep. Some people are fine with that. Some people are fine with the going with the, the flow of the baby. But then other mm -hmm. people, like you say, it's having a negative impact on their life. So they want to bring in a routine. And it can be very difficult at the start because it almost goes against your instinct to comfort the baby at all times. And I remember it so well myself being on high alert for every cry and even in a shopping centre a baby cries and you go is that mine no I'm okay yeah. so you're kind <laughs> of wired to help them so you need somebody to guide you through all of this but you're against the crying out method explain a little bit about that yeah so first of all just going back to your point around um, the parenting style you're right I, I'm a big believer in being led by the baby and that's what most parents will want to do Sometimes the babies takes you down a very dark path. So, and, and that's where we need to sometimes get the baby onto a path that, that works for them, ultimately longer term, but also works for the parents and allows us to be the best parenting version of ourselves. With regards to crying out, it's, it's such a, a controversial and talked about topic. In short, it basically means leaving your baby in the cot or crib on their own uh, to allow themselves to cry, cry themselves to sleep effectively. Um, it's there's a lot of evidence that's out there to suggest that, it, that it's harmful for the baby longer term and it's certainly an approach that I don't believe in regardless of whether it's leaving them for a couple of minutes or leaving them for 10 or 12 minutes or whatever it may be also 
if you were going to really take that approach, I don't think there's, um, it's worth spending X amount of money on a sleep consultant to tell you to do exactly what you could probably do yourself. So my my approach is very much more in the gentle end of sleep training where you would always be with your child. And that, to me, is really important. Only when they're able to kind of settle themselves nicely and enjoy going to sleep with you there would we then look to do it, do it independently. So it's something that I'm very passionate about. Um, and it's something that I will always make sure that is in place when I'm working with my clients, so that there's never a crying out approach. Well, it sounds like an obvious question, but even as a parent myself, I'm not sure I know the science behind it. Why do we need a sleep routine? I mean, we all need sleep and we get that it's it's a pillar of, of health. But why is it important to to teach a child to sleep through the night and nap in the day? So th- th- there's a lot of... Um parents out there and sleep consultants say that you, you can't teach a baby how to sleep and I, I, I'm obviously one of them that, that fundamentally believes that you can because they're, they're not used to, to sleeping when they, can, they necessarily come out of the womb and they're, they're, their day and night is upside down so we can get them into a nice pattern and routine and the importance of that is all around their development. A, a baby will, will do so much cognitive and physical physical development when they're sleeping their language will develop their motor skills will be developing as they're sleeping so sleep is so important from the development side of things there's also the mood side of things as well and the nutritional side of things when babies have slept well they eat and drink way better than when they're too tired to because they're always falling asleep on on the breast of the bottle or they're maybe too tired to try their new lovely new solids or purees whatever they're doing from a weaning and 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 an eating perspective um so there's 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 that aspect and then there's obviously the mood side of things it's it's tough being a parent it's the most magical the most amazing thing in the world but it is challenging and when you've got a fairly constant challenge of a baby being cranky or grumpy throughout the day that can make it even even tougher for parents and they can often feel like they're failing because their baby's always unhappy or grumpy and and so sleep has so many different factors the development side the improved nutrition from it and obviously the mood and energy which makes parenting that little bit more enjoyable did you notice a difference during covid with the kind of of calls that you were getting from parents Business just went through the roof during COVID. It was it was a case of parents used it as an opportunity to try and get their child into a routine, um, but they could they were they were still struggling for their babies to to be able to settle. I actually noticed whenever we started coming out of lockdowns, whether it was in Ireland or in the in the UK. Um, there was a spell of about a week or two weeks where things quietened down a little bit because parents expected or hoped that, that sleeping patterns would improve um, as they got out and about and fresh air and stimulation. But then we picked them back up again because the reality then said and that the, ba- the, the baby still didn't, or baby or toddler still didn't know how to sleep, even with the change of environment. So from our perspective, um, our business has grown through COVID. I would rather have COVID didn't exist than, than our business growing, but uh, it is what it is, unfortunately. But we've just used it as an opportunity to to grow our business, expand even further into Ireland. Um, and, and parents have have kind of seen it as an opportunity to when they're in the house to really focus on their routine whether that's with a sleep consultant or with with not a sleep consultant um and i i read you've got a lot more calls from dads because obviously the way we've started working remotely i mean it's strange to think that in this modern age i mean we know we're not quite in the the mad men era where men literally did 
nothing but you notice a spike in mm. calls from dads because they were around more and I heard it anecdotally myself dads sitting on Zoom calls with babies on their knee things that wouldn't have happened before I mean we've come a long way but we took another few leaps and did they resonate better hearing another dad on the end of the phone do you think? Yeah, you're, it's amazing. It's honestly amazing for me to see other dads so involved in the process. My dad, I don't, uh, he's hes not alive anymore. And he, he wasn't alive uh, before I had kids. So the, the kind of questions I would ask as a dad um, or to my mum, I wasn't able to. But I don't believe he ever changed the nappy. He was he was very old fashioned in his ways. Um, but it's the, the, the world is changing in Ireland and in the UK. And it's so magical to actually hear from dads. Um, and they're, they're really becoming a big part of the, the process. I'm, I'm really recognising it. Um, I think it's relatable for dads to hear f- from an expert that's a dad. They might feel like they can they can relate a little bit more and speak to me a little bit more openly. But it's not just dads as well. A lot of mums like to, to work with a dad or a man as well because and there might be some out there that don't and that's absolutely fine but some will do it because it might they might feel like their partner will relate more and it allows them to feel that they can get a partner the husband partner engaged in the process more so dads have definitely feel like they can they can open up to me a little bit more um and mums as well then there's the other side that there might be a little a lot of proud men out there that think they can they wouldn't want another man to try and help their, their family and they would be, rather do it themselves i'm seeing less of that I'm seeing more of they're using it as an opportunity to engage with another man in the parenting industry. And I just think it's fantastic. And I think that will continue to grow and grow. And one of my passions with this business is just increasing the the, the parenting narrative to include dads. Even with sleep consultants across the UK and Ireland, it's all targeted at women. Uh, and I just think there's an opportunity to really make it a bit more inclusive for, for dads, not just for the men themselves, but for mums that believe that dads can be more part of the process. And if they're constantly reading articles um, that just focus on mums, then dads will be switched off a little bit. And that's not taken into consideration the fact that we've also got same-sex relationships, two dads, two mums. And I just think sometimes the the, the narrative out there is, is, is a little bit singular. Great, Chris. I love that. And as a mom, I I totally welcome it. And I often say maternity leave can, you know, put marriages and parenting miles behind because you're the one who's at home for six months on your own and you essentially become the manager of the house and the family by Mm -hmm. default and I think COVID that's another good part that came from it that you know dads were home for maternity leave as well which is incredible right we have to get to this Christmas Eve thing that I've promised (laughs) because Santa is coming and like I said in the intro like we've wound our kids up over the last perhaps three months Santa has been mentioned and then yet it comes to Christmas Eve and we're expecting them to just chill out go asleep and get a good night and not be cranky the next day so what's your advice for Christmas Eve? So Christmas Eve first of all for younger babies, do not change the routine. If they're having daytime sleep, don't change that. The one thing that parents often do is cut out the nap because they think that they'll get down to sleep easier because they're, mo- they're going to be more tired. But actually, they'll be overtired, which can make the process of going to sleep more difficult because babies and toddlers, when they get a little bit overtired, become kind of fight sleep, fight the situation, throw more tantrums. Um, so actually stick to the routine as much as possible is, is really, really key. Get them out and about as well. Physical activity. Do tile them out. Just make sure they're getting enough daytime sleep. Um, but do tile them out. Get their minds and bodies stimulated so that the, 
process of getting them down should be a little bit easier. If they don't sleep during the day because they're a bit older, do a Christmas movie, have some quiet time. Um, that's really important. And also sugar. You talked about it at the start, the, the introduction on it. Sugar, trying, I, I'm not going to be that Scrooge that say don't have chocolate or sugar on Christmas Eve. However, just maybe stick to having it um, before dinner and not after dinner. So can I cut, put a time limit on it so that they can try and get that energy and nervous energy out of their body. Um, and then in terms of the bedtime routine, keep it the same. Try and keep it as stimulate, uh, low stimulating as possible. Read Christmas books. Um, as I said, if TV is part of your routine also, then, then do a nice Christmas movie. Just try and make sure it's not too stimulating. But above all, try and keep the routine as much as possible. Um, that's really, really important. But also, without wanting to sound like Scrooge, just enjoy. It's yeah. the most amazing day in the world when we all look forward to it. And Christmas Eve is sometimes even more fun than Christmas Day. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's so magical leaving everything out for Santa and just soak up the moments yeah. because they really don't last forever. Well, if people want to find out more, they can go to the daddysleepconsultant.ie. Chris McFadden, we wish you a very Merry Christmas to you, to your wife, to Ted, to Rafferty and baby number three. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Claire. Merry Christmas. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks as ever to my producer, John Fardy, and to Garrett Mulhall, and to Jojo Cordoza, who was on sound. And thanks to you for listening. I will see you next week. I'm hoping this email finds everyone well. I'm trying to finish that work project while carrying Dan's dead weight. I've got to get my hair cut for Sinead's sister's bed and get the sweet gains in and find time to eat before I... Look, James, get real. No one gives a about how busy you are. Hashtag rise and grind. Get real with the chicken and turkey range from Green Farm. Real protein, real tasty.